pretty much pop a culture podcast playing all the hits only the hits and in fact advocating that all the non-hits be purged from all electronic devices today's topic is unpopular music genre fandom this is mark lintenmeyer liker of many things that would disgust you my name is jonathan segel i'm a musician and a composer i'm an american who lives abroad i'm living in sweden i'm a fan of many musics that are unpopular here that's for sure so I'm Steve Petrenko. I'm a multi-instrumentalist, producer, DJ, and I play in multiple genres of music. I like to do collaborations with people around the world, currently doing one with a man in Nigeria named Dalapo Oladejo. And I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I've been playing music my entire life. And I love all genres of music. I especially love unpopular genres of music. And the dollar bin in the vinyl record store is my friend. And we made unpopular music together in our college band. So. <laughs> Hi, I'm Matt. I produce the Elucidations podcast. I also program computers at the University of Chicago Library. And I teach computer science here. And uh, relation to music, uh, I've been a lifelong music lover and audiophile, and I've been playing really bad drums for some years now, and they keep getting worse and worse. And I also love to sing karaoke. Steve's comment about the dollar bin like just deeply resonated with my soul. That's like the dollar bin is like where I'm at 24 seven. So Matt, it was your idea that got this topic going, but I was very excited to hear the three of you that I know from different things in different ways to actually stuff you all together and see what you had to say together. Can we kind of though to give an overview of the topic? So Jonathan, let's start with you that you said you're a fan of many unpopular music genres. You also, as a creator, have gone in every possible way. You have all your eggs in the music basket, which means that any free time, it seems that you have, goes into learning more about something, trying something. So there's just different experimental types. And the one time I've seen you in person at your show in 2018 or something in Madison, I told you about this show that had just started. And you said, I'm not into pop anything, so I don't know if I could be on your <laughs> pop culture show. But now, finally, I found an anti-pop culture topic. So start us in. You're, you have this contact with historical music genres, or do you even see things in terms of genre? I think I have to see things in terms of genre just in order to find my way through to find different kinds of music. You know, I studied music, and I studied music composition, and I have a graduate degree in composition. So I've listened to, historically a lot of Western music, a lot of Western art music, and a lot of Asian music, a lot of African music, a lot of Middle Eastern music, a lot of Slavic music and stuff like that. And my old band, Camper Van Beethoven, of course, took a lot of different influences from ethnic music types. But rather than trying to accurately reproduce them, we saw them more through the lens of, say, 60s television pop culture, where you would have the idea of, is that what Indian music sounds like? Well, we can extrapolate upon that. So the idea of breaking down genres and playing within and intermingling those sort of things has always been a big part of my compositional technique, I think. I don't know where else to go with this, except that I live in Stockholm, you know, the home of ABBA. And most of the music, the world of music that exists in Stockholm is based on what is successful. And they believe that what is successful is good. And so a lot of the pop music culture is based on the idea of manufacturing these songs for Melody Festival or Eurovision song contests. And a lot of that is, in my opinion, complete crap. However, it's the most popular music genre around here. Steve, you didn't mention that you are now, just as of recently, an internet DJ. What is this MM radio even that I've heard two of your shows on? So MM Radio is just the brainchild of a man named Eric who lives in Switzerland. And anyone can start up a radio station now. And he did, and it's taking off. He plays any music that anybody sends to him. And he contacted me because we became friends on Facebook. And he said, it looks like you like a lot of different genres of music and you play a lot of different genres of music why don't you create a radio show for my radio station? So basically I did. And because of other radio programs that I've been a part of for the last five years, I've explored a lot of independent artists. So I have a whole giant backlog 
of people that I've been listening to for years that I know who they are. My friends on those radio stations know who they are, but the world doesn't know who they are. And so I'm able to cherry pick the best of the best songs that I've heard of theirs over the last five years. So I'm kind of in a unique position to be able to extract songs that touch me emotionally. So I put together track lists of those songs and I talk about how they touch me. And usually I play the song and I give an emotional reaction at the end. And I try to pick songs that actually make me cry. And that's not that hard to make me cry with music. It's pretty easy. It's, I'm very affected. Uh, so the entire show is just you crying with a little yes. bit of music here and there. It's cathartic. I try to mix it up. So if I've got songs that are about death, then I'm going to cry because the song's about death. And usually the people are like, oh my goodness, the people are from all over the world. There's a man in India, his name is Adi Aurora, and he wrote this song about this COVID death from his friend, from a poem, and he's got the stellar voice, and it's just the most beautiful thing that I've ever heard, and you play it, and I mean, he just starts singing, and I start crying, and like this chorus comes in, and I just... Total waterworks. I end up just full on weeping literally every time that I hear it. So it's kind of a fun show. And that's what the station manager person said is that that's authentic. You're really crying on there, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, I'm really crying. That's how I do it. But I try to mix up the music with things that are upbeat also that affect me from a happiness standpoint so that it's not just me crying all the time. <laughs> I have some variety. The feels. It's called the feels. The feels on cool. MM radio. Nice. Sounds appropriate. We were concerned a lot as young people, maybe not so much in our personal listening. It's not like we were like, oh, we are punk snobs and we can't listen to it. But there were definite genre lines that we kind of turned up our nose at. And I remember one of our friends, now deceased, Cliff Kaminsky, who would come in and like, oh, I've got this Brazilian pop music. And we'd be like, why? What? What is this? Right. What, why, <laughs> why are you listening listen to Brazilian to pop music? Because there was a feeling that there had to be some sort of coherence. And I still, to some extent, feel this where he was like, no, I'll be a John Denver fan. I was like, oh, no, John Denver is something that I liked when I was 11. And now I'm too ashamed that, you know, <laughs> and it sounds like, of course, as now we're old, at least you and I have crossed the 50 mark here. And it just seems so superficial. And so it sounds like you are taking a very music is universal. And insofar as I can drill in and figure out what this person is, that's what you're looking for is a direct human to human connection. Screw genres. All that stuff is, you know, just external imposed or the popularity within a genre or popularity within a clique, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. I mean, it's really obvious when I was playing with bands in the 1980s and touring on the independent circuit, it was very obvious like what bands were cool to like and what bands were not cool to like. For instance, I remember seeing the Meat Puppets in the mid-1980s. You know, they had moved from their very, very early, really rough punk rock stuff to their third record, Up on the Sun, which was pretty complicated and had a lot of stuff. And I was like, you guys have been listening to Gentle Giant. But at the time, like early 1980s, prog rock was, you know, considered anathema to punk rock. So you couldn't say, oh, yeah, we've been listening to prog rock. But it was pretty obvious, you know, where they were coming from and where they were inserting it into their Up on the Sun record, for instance. I almost wonder whether that could be like a trick to try to seem more original. Like, all right, I'm going to peer pressure everybody not listen to the bands that I'm drawing on in my music. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I feel bad sometimes pointing out those artists to people when I hear their recordings and I'm like, oh, that came from there and that came from there. And I'm like, just shut up, Steve. Don't ruin it for them. They know it came from somewhere, too, and they've made it their own. Well, and you would point out with my stuff, like, that sounds like a Muppet harmony. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, but of course, that was a formative influence in how to put harmonies together is the silliness of, but as an 18-year-old, as a You know, I'm not going to acknowledge like, oh, I better change it. (laughs) Sure. I mean, but we all wear our influences like that. And I guess there's some sort of gray area between plagiarism and homage. All right. I want to unleash the Matt Kraken here. Then you had even done a whole, this was your idea. You had done a whole PowerPoint that you shared with us. If I ever make an album, that's going to be called Unleash the Mad Kraken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of the disdain to which, you know, the conceptual incoherence of our traditional notion of genre. Give us an overview of that in a controlled way. This actually originated from when I was studying film. 
at the graduate level. And all these film professors are wondering about like, how do we like precisely define genres? And they seem to constantly be running up against difficulties there because whenever they try to say like, these are the features that every film noir has in common, or these are the features that every action movie has in common. They couldn't do it because there'd always be exceptions. Sort of the thought I had was that maybe not like scholarship type genres where like people write these art history type things about like surrealist this and da da that, but more like the kinds of movie genres and also music genres you come across in the music store and the blockbuster back when we had blockbusters. And my basic idea there is that, well, maybe there isn't any one precise set of style features that these all have in common because that's not really what makes them genres. Maybe what really what makes them genres is these social stereotypes we associate with each kind. And really, maybe the difference between R&B and grunge, to take some you know 90s genres, mm. is really not to do with the way the music sounds, but in like, what kind of person do I want to portray myself as being to other people? Do I want to portray myself as being an R&B type person? Or do I want to portray myself as being a grunge type person? Or whatever, pick your favorite two examples. I thought there was a fair amount of this. Like one thing that used to be really common, and it's like, you think about it, it's kind of offensive, but whatever, you know, I grew up during offensive times. People always used to say, when I was growing up, you'd be like, well, what kind of music do you listen to? This is like a very common getting to know somebody question. And I think that's illustrative of something here. Like you're getting to know somebody by learning what genres they like. You feel like you've learned something deep about their personality that way. So people used to ask this question, what kind of music do you listen to? And the very common answer then was like, oh, I listen to everything. Except, of course, country and rap. And uh, I think that's just a classic example. It's like people don't want to get associated with the type of people who listen to X genre. And that becomes a way of pushing back against the genre as a whole. Because it's these social associations we have with different genres. And by the way, I recognize this controversial. Please feel free to push back against me on this. But as I get older, I feel like just a good way to get to the happy place is to try to resist these social stereotypes and just sort of appreciate the music on its own terms. Don't think about what kind of person doesn't make you that you enjoy this. That's sort of where I've tended in recent years. Well, it's definitely true. I mean, the social context describes whether you belong or don't belong to that culture as a genre listener or whatever. And of course, within that whatever genre, there's still like arbiters of what is cool and what is not cool. The real metal or the real punk or, the, or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah. it's like... Uh, the only real punk record by The Clash is the first album, et cetera, et cetera. Or like High Fidelity. Yeah, yeah, Or yeah, any, yeah. any version of High Fidelity since the book. <laughs> you know, they all have like those record store cliches. And it's true. You know, I worked in a record store for a few years in San Francisco. And it was true. It was like with the punk rock... The guy that looked like Henry Rollins, you know, at the counter, a person coming up with like some sort of twee pop is going to be like, oh, God, I hope this is okay, you know, with the, <laughs> the punk rock clerk going, oh, okay. Yeah, right. I can't even get the music because they're going to scowl at me if I try to buy it. <laughs> exactly. But then I realized that the people who liked uh, less tough music had to be tougher to buy it. Absolutely. I found that one of the hardest things was if you went into a record store and the clerk there, if you really admired that clerk and their view of music, and if that person had a just a vast knowledge of music and you looked up to them and they said a blanket statement like, and I loved all of these things until strings got put into music. And now there's strings in music and now strings just make music evil. And then so in my head, I'm like, so I'm not allowed to like music with strings right. anymore? Is that a terrible thing? And he was pointing at jazz and the Creed Taylor thing with that type of production. And it made me hate, not hate, but like feel bad about liking Creed Taylor productions. And it took me like 10 years after he said that. For me to be like, oh my God, look at all of this music that I've been ignoring because it says Creed Taylor on it. And now it's just like, oh my, it's like some of the best things ever. How did I go through my life not knowing that disco jazz was a genre? I had no idea how awesome disco jazz is. It's like one of the best things I've ever discovered. It's so exciting. Let me just inject here that Steve did a whole album of Bee Gees covers as well. Very faithful <laughs> Bee Gees covers. So you've, wow, you've put yeah. in the time. Wow. Man, you have the falsetto too, huh? That's, that takes some real technique. That was a connecting tissue. Matt, you were saying the unpopular music genre you had in mind and bringing this up was 70s stuff. And it can't be an accident that 
the patterns of musical fashion, you know, Jonathan, you were saying that in 1981, being a prog fan, which is what, 1973, maybe was its height or something, was uncool. But there has to be then probably by 1995 or something, probably it was okay to like prog again. These things go in waves. And we've now, yeah, they, we've, yeah. yeah we've gone on, like, I think 70s is okay again now, but maybe not to the extent. So maybe we're not being as countercultural as we think in saying, Oh, I, bread. I want to listen to bread. <laughs> you know, or well, yeah. one of the things about like those yacht rock sort of thing that became really, really popular again with kids 15 years ago, things like bread and hall and oats and stuff like this. And one person that I was talking to, I can't even remember who this was. I think it was, I was at Outside Lands in San Francisco when Camper was playing there at one point and Hall and Oates was going to be playing on the main stage. And I was like, how is it that this band is super popular with 18 and 20 year olds? And they said, they don't have this. Like 18 and 20 year olds don't have that whole like soft rock thing as a genre yet that they're making themselves. This is maybe 10, 12 years ago. So they had to find the older versions of it, the 70s versions of it, like bread and things like that. And I think that now there are bands, there are young bands that are emulating this sort of thing. Soft rock is interesting too, because I feel like a lot of it is created retroactively by branding. So a lot of those bands maybe just thought of themselves at the time. Oh, we're just rock bands. We're just or like folk rock or country rock or whatever. And then later on, the soft rock radio station, you know, 15 years later starts playing them. And now they're considered to be that. Yeah. Like America. Exactly. Exactly. Like America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was riding through the car listening to the radio with my wife a few weeks ago. And then we got the light rock radio station on, which is, of course, that's my constantly my go-to here in Chicago. And like the Fugees come on. I'm like, it's Wyclef Jean. How would he feel about being on the light rock station? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Those things are all still true. Like my children, when they were little, there was still melodic music being produced. I really feel like today's current music, like the last 10 years, there's not a lot of melodic music out there anymore. And, and, you know, 10 years ago, there still was. And so they gravitated to some of the new musics that were coming out at the time. But now there's nothing. And so both children's playlists, they're 13 and 17 years old, are all the old music. My son played a playlist in the car the other day, and it was all 60s psychedelic stuff. And it was like not, you know, the stuff that you would normally hear on the radio. It was like deep tracks. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's really special that they're getting into this music because they would never let me play any of it when they were little. I couldn't play them anything i've got a fast library and they're just like we don't want to hear that dad (laughs) but but now everything's like we don't have these melodic things and they crave it we've been on a tour all summer of seeing older acts live because my daughter wants to see all these people before they're dead yeah do you ever feel like top 40 music is getting more kind of referential of i don't know if this is true it's just a vague sense i have it's getting more referential of previous eras and the sounds of those eras. Like when I was talking about the Melody Festival and Eurovision stuff, this is Mm. the the extremely popular music in Europe and per country. Like we have, you know, the Melody Festival is like all the Swedish acts that vie for who's going to be representing Sweden in Eurovision. But all of these songs, like two at one, I can name where they are plagiarized from within like probably two minutes of them playing the song. And this has been going on since ABBA. You know, since the 1970s, after ABBA had won the Eurovision contest in 74, 75, I guess, there was a very famous Swedish artist named Ted Järdestad, and they sent him to record in LA. And one of the big songs that he came back with was called Satellite or Satellite. And if you listen to it, it's like, oh, they were recording in the studio next to Toto who was doing toe the line. And it's like, oh, I see exactly what's happening here, you know? Yeah, of course, in talking about unpopular music genres, like the example I gave of the Brazilian pop, it is, of course, just a matter of in your current circle. And maybe that what we've seen here is the new thing added here, why we can't say that what's going on now is just like what went on in the 80s is maybe the, I don't want to say complete, but the partial breakdown of the monoculture just through the internet and through that there's too many you know, just like news is segmented, you know, if people are getting their stuff, what, from Spotify playlists or Apple playlists, like if that is what they're using instead of top 40 radio, there is still obviously a top 40. And there are people 
that I'm regularly shamed about like, oh, you don't know who Kesha is? You don't know, like, sorry, I'm old. I don't keep up. There still is a mainstream, but it seems like it's an ever thinner thread such that more and more people, I would assume, are either doing their own independent musical journeys or I guess what I'm hearing more is not doing journeys at all. That instead they're, you know, watching streaming TV. Or I had a nephew who was like, oh, I listened to the soundtrack that pretty much like I read internet comics and the soundtracks that are used on the internet comics. Like, that's a weird way to get music, but okay. That's very interesting, though. For instance, I'll give you an example of not quite that, but similar to that, which is that I was watching with, I have an 11 year old. So it's like mm, probably four Five years ago, we were watching Adventure Time, the cartoon series, all the time. And there's a character on it that was singing a song. She plays bass. She's a vampire. She was singing this song. And I was like, what a great song this is. Who actually wrote this song? Turns out it was Mitski. So we started listening to Mitski. And Mitski is now one of my daughter's favorite artists. And you know, she's made six records, I think, in the last 10 years or something like that. But she also did a soundtrack for a comic book. The comic book came with a cassette and it was only on cassette and it was special music that she had done for it. So it's very rarefied like who the fans are that are going to be purchasing this. This This is very different from a record clerk. A very different way to get music delivered to you than from a record clerk recommending something or forbidding you to buy something. I have to admit that it's like I take a lot of cues from what I see other people are listening to. Like for instance on Facebook or from internet bandcamp based labels that I like that will send out notifications. Like for instance, I've always liked Cuneiform Records. They do very outside sort of jazz, jazz rock, post rock sort of stuff. And every week they're like, oh, we're going to be selling this record for $5 this week. And so, you know, I'll listen to it. And about half the time it's like, I'm buying that. I'm spending $5 on this Dave Kerman and the five you use really difficult listening, progressive, odd rock or something like that. I have no idea who else listens to it. Here I am, you know, alone in my apartment in Stockholm. I have no friends that are listening to that same music at all. Let's stop for a sponsor break. Are you missing out on your favorite TV show because it's not available in your region? Are you trying to keep your private time private? Well, let me introduce NordVPN. I have long used a VPN because I don't think that the places that I visit should have my IP address. I don't like being tracked that way. NordVPN keeps all your information encrypted so you don't ever have to worry about your IP or location getting out. And beyond a regular VPN, NordVPN has doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature, which protects you from intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and will delete it before it makes a mess of your computer. So all that is great, but that is like getting insurance. That might not sound like you're actually getting new features, but do you know through a VPN you could, for instance, Use your current Netflix authentication to access not just U.S. Netflix, but if you use the VPN to say, hey, I'm in the U.K., then you get a whole bunch of different things that have been licensed just to U.K. Netflix, and you can do this with any of your streaming services. If something on YouTube says this is not available in your area, well, try a different area. So I used this recently to see Better Call Saul on uh, Netflix UK, and I've used it in the past for anime and concerts and a lot of British TV that I like and... Many other things, like if you're a fan of The Office, do you know that The Office has versions in quite a few different countries that is worth your time to check out? Now, there is literally no risk for you because NordVPN has a 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try. If you like it, great. If you don't, you get a full refund, can pretend the whole situation never happened. So check out nordvpn.com slash PMP to get your subscription started today. You'll get a huge discount on a two-year plan plus four free months of NordVPN, all with that 30-day money-back guarantee. NordVPN.com slash PMP. Well, there was a weird point. I actually wrote a paper on this in undergrad in the late 80s on prog rock because that was a point at which supposedly hard-to-listen-to stuff was becoming popular with the advent of Revolution Number 9, you know, the Beatles and their ilk kicking this off. And that was a very weird deviation. I feel maybe it was drug related from pop music that for a while it was like albums, not singles. And I don't feel like we could ever have that again as a mainstream because for obvious reasons, like what is an 11 year old going to get into? But I don't know, Steve, like I do they buy music? I I long introduced you, Steve, as like the guy who 
thought that the Beatles White Album was normal, like that that was the first album you'd ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Came out when I was five. I was like, all right, that's music. That's cool. I thought every record had to have tape music on it, like After Bathing at Baxter's and Zappa and the Mothers were only in it for the money. Yeah, any Zappa album at that time, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's like, oh, you have to make a piece of tape music, a tape collage that is one of the tracks. So I've followed that advice my whole life, of course, <laughs> to varying results. For me, the White Album, just that is what music is, and everything is kind of spawned from that. I always say that there's like several John Lennons that exist and like there's artists that were like, that is what I want to be. And so you had the original John Lennon and then you had the David Bowie John Lennon and you had the Barry Gibb John Lennon and they did those things. And that's like the whole basis of music for me. I never thought I'd ever hear anyone say the phrase, the Barry Gibb John Lennon. That's <laughs> that, that's my next album after <laughs> Unleash the Matt Kraken. But most people don't, realize that there's a whole 1967 to 1974 period of the Bee Gees where it's like the greatest musical adventure ever. I highly recommend everyone go down that journey because it is just one of the most beautiful sets of music ever made. But avoid Cucumber Castle and the film. Oh, I love both (laughs) of those. (laughs) I saw that film not that long ago. I felt cringy how they were addressing class and themselves within class in England. It was, it made me cringe, actually. I guess I'm too much of a fan. I was just looking at the hair. Yeah. (laughs) Well, if we're we're going through some case studies, like I went through a monkey's period sometime in the last couple decades because that was the definition of a manufactured bullshit pop band. It is just crap retreaded Beatles, but Of course, when you actually get into it, what a wealth of songwriters they were drawing from. It just, there were too many old people involved. So, you know, old at the time, it was not actually the music of the young generation. It was like this injection of Tin Pan Alley stuff. And it's just a weird story. So to go through that. That whole Wrecking Crew thing. And, you know, if you're going to rip on the monkeys, then you have to rip on people like Frank Sinatra. I mean, right. Which we would. (laughs) It's the same thing, right? It's somebody singing over a track. Yeah. Since the Let It Be documentary, John Lennon has there's more Beatles stories in the news and him referring to McCartney's 40s influence stuff as old granny music. He didn't want anything to do with that. That was not among the John Lennons, but that was actually my favorite stuff when I'm 64, you know, as a young trying to be hip and out there because that was for our time for, oh, everybody's into punk or into Bon Jovi or to be into something that was reminiscent of Frank Sinatra, even though I didn't want to listen to Frank Sinatra himself. It's felt like young people like Paul McCartney doing a Frank Sinatra influence thing. There was something that was still rebellious about that or they were cool. I know from my own perspective, for my own music, the fact that I have this wealth of listening behind me, that I have all of these influences to be able to draw on. When I'm writing, I think it makes people better writers. I think that Paul McCartney was a better writer because he had all of that wealth of music from his father playing all of those things in the house that you could intersperse that type of music with rock and roll and create a completely different genre. I mean, that was what was special about the Beatles is that there were so many different genres of music being melded into one even if they were unpopular genres at the time. I agree. And I think that that was what growing up in the 1960s, you know, as a small child, that was my understanding of what rock music was. It wasn't like the 50s Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley idea of what rock music was. My understanding was, oh, you can do anything so long as you're playing it with like guitars and a drum and singing, but it could be any style pushed into that world. You could do anything. So it opened up the genre a lot, I think. Like how you're saying about Prague, how that sort of like came out into the 70s. And then there was very large divides about what was the avant-garde? Was the avant-garde coming from jazz? Who were the people that were interested in the avant-garde? Was there a vernacular avant-garde or was it necessarily a bourgeois avant-garde? You know, all of these sorts of things divided up social groups. So that like some people were saying, oh, it's okay to listen to Yes or Miles Davis or whatever like that because they're both exploring the limits of music. And other people are like, but that's not rock and roll. Yeah, rock and roll has to be as simple as possible 
two chords. Right. So Matt, you're maybe at least a decade younger than I am. So you were coming up in the 90s was your childhood music. Is that right? Okay. So how does this? Yeah. All grunge all the time. Really? And then and the first half only really, because uh, the second half I had too much homework. So I, yeah, I watched <laughs> MTV heavily from like 1992 to 1996. Yes. Uh, so that's really, yeah. Uh, so much of this seems generational. Of course, Paul McCartney was like, as Steve just said, was reflecting the music of his father. And if I like John Denver, that's because that's what my dad was listening to. And so it just depends sort of how old your parents were and how old you were in these times. Although interestingly, the first band I ever really listened to and bought records by was the Beatles. I think it's because I watched the movie Help when I was 10 years old. Mm. And that's the perfect movie for a 10 year old. It's so silly. And the music is great. So like for my first like, I don't know, 10 albums I bought on cassette tape. uh, Those were like all Beatles albums, you know, and then people started making fun of me at school for listening to them. And then I tried out whatever was hot back then, like Nirvana, Metallica and stuff. The number of us have started with the Beatles. I think that's pretty awesome. (laughs) One of the funny things I find about Prague is that there's some uh, exclusions that are in there. Everybody, when you say Prague, people think Mm. yes, and they think old Genesis. Do they think Chris Cutler, Henry Cowd, you know, like, yeah, there's a, there's a whole genre of music that I guess it's just one group really, but people exclude Funkadelic from Prague. And right. it shouldn't be, because that's actually, for me anyway, that was the pinnacle. We've combined everything that is at our fingertips here in 1971. We're hearing this Prague stuff. We've got our soul stuff at the same time. We're meshing these things together. We're creating this super sound that nobody's ever heard of before. That was the ultimate progression as far as I'm concerned. That was some amazing stuff that they were doing. We haven't really brought in, you know, of course, if it's how you identify and if the people say, well, I'm not into rap, then there are underlying racial overtones, which as four white dudes on this, we're not going to be able to address in a great way. But, you know, at least to various extents, I think, Steve, you've been much more devoted. Like I went through a, a serious, I will listen to everything Miles Davis related. We've talked about jazz before, but like in going the disco route have really taken seriously, as you just said, all these divisions of what counts as experimental, if you bring any sort of implicitly racial considerations into that, that that is obviously just something that we should seek to undo in our personal tastes. A lot of that has, again, to do with inclusion or exclusion in social circles, which is, you know, a lot of the unpopular music thing is about inclusion or exclusion, I think, in terms of social circles. Like, are you a fan of unpopular music? And I know this is true of a lot of people. People become fans of very specific kinds of music, and then they start to be exclusionary about other kinds of music because, like, for instance, oh, I only listen to purely improvised music, you know, only something, but only if it has saxophone and upright bass, you know, or something like that, because they start to form what their social standing is within some idea of, like, how unpopular what they like is. Yeah, it kind of makes you feel special, makes you feel like you're the uh, secret keeper of, or you're, you're the keeper of the special secret. Right, exactly. <laughs> you have power over other people. They don't know about it. You only you know about it. They can't even hear it because then they're going to learn about it and then you won't be the one who knows about it. Oh my God. <laughs> so it's like saying that you're going to include Parliament Funkadelic into the Prague canon is probably going to really piss off a lot of Prague, like real 70s <laughs> Prague heads. You know, they're going to be like, oh no, that can't be. It has a strict beat, you know, or it's black music or something like that. But I don't know. I never thought really. Yeah, the Dream it, Theater people are going to be super offended by that comparison. Look out exactly, for that. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know. They all need to get on that Cosmic Slop album right away. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also part of what goes into these definitions of what you would consider avant-garde is what you feel like you're familiar with. So if you're starting with the Beatles and Bob Dylan or whatever are the basic, you know, Buddy Holly are basic rock music. And then, ooh, look at these crazy things that the Beatles were doing it. Oh, oh, now, you know, yes, it's bringing in symphonic stuff. But if you were actually a music scholar in the first place and were into what the jazz guys were doing in the 50s and 60s, if you were into what the classical composers were doing in 1910, none of this seems in the least bit experiment. You know, it's experimental for that genre. Like we're actually going to have this on the radio, but it's clearly a fusion of synthesis. We're not actually breaking the bounds of perception or something. <laughs> no. So I think the whole idea of popularity and unpopularity, again, is like it's a social situation, really. Well, and we keep talking about, you know, there's what's actually popular and then what is trendy. In other words, what we as self-proclaimed or subgroup proclaimed keepers of the flame of punk or metal or whatever, the, what the tastemakers pick, 
that that is itself a form of unpopularity. So ironically, to then try to, you know, like it's a Hegelian dialectic, there's the pop and then there's the rebels. Well, I'm going to be a rebel against the rebels. And that is where we started with, you know, Steve jumping back into disco and Matt, you saying that, you know, your fascination with the 70s of I'm going to like this drippy stuff that you snobs dismiss. Or like the Gen Z kids being into soft rock or something like that. It's, it goes along with the ironic mustache, you know, or the ironic mullet where it's like, oh, I grew this mustache, but it's ironic. But then it's like once you've had it on for two years or three years, you're like, I actually like it. So is it ironic anymore? Or is it like I've actually learned to like this? I've pitted myself against society by being part of this unpopular genre or part of this unpopular style. Yeah, I will absolutely cop to that. Yeah. When I was in my like early 20s, super into avant-garde stuff. I don't know. I was like, I was really into like Peter Brotzman's nipples, which is just like really in your face, like ear scratching, yeah. nails on chalkboard record, but in a good way, of course, you know, but anyway, and then it's like, well, what's the next frontier? In a weird way, I was like, I also like randomly popped on like Britney Spears, oops, I did it again. There was something kind of similar in just the in-your-faceness. It was like, it's heavily dynamically compressed and the way that the instruments come in and surprise you when well, you weren't expecting this effect to come in here now and it like knocks you out of your chair. So I was actually like weirdly getting these sort of like free jazz like qualities in the music that was popular at the time. But I'm sure I was also sort of like enjoying the delicious nectar of everyone else, you know, being grossed out by the fact that I was listening to Britney Spears around me, given my social circles. So in a way, yeah, I feel like the next frontier of avant-garde can often be the whatever top 40 billboard stuff. And to take that Britney Spears example one step further, you know, Richard Thompson, when he was doing his thousand years of popular oh my God, music, yeah. <laughs> he, did, he, he inserted that in as he's doing Renaissance music, but yeah, it's yeah. like where he comes from Renaissance music and then bringing this Britney Spears song in, it's like, oh, well, it's the exact same chord progression as was used by Troubadour music, where it, it goes between the minor dominant five and then to the relative major and stuff like that. Anyway. You know, this episode really isn't about covers, but I, yeah, I think it's so incredible when somebody can do a cover of another piece and make it sound like one of their own. They bring out all these features of the original piece that you never would have known were there. That Richard Thompson doing Oops, I Did It Again is such an amazing example of that. It's really great. Yeah. Yeah. I find that one of the keys to liking unpopular genres is like a dopamine association with it. So in the 70s, we had all these hokey things that defined our childhood. I mean, we didn't have a lot of television channels. So all we did was watch Gilligan's Island over and over and over again, like Fantasy Island and The Love Boat. And we had these things where we had these, what we call hokey artists would be displayed or you could hear them. They gave you like a bunch of pleasure. Now, if I'm at the record store and I'm in the dollar bin and there's an Engelbert Humperdinck album, maybe I'll pick it up because I'll play it and I'll get this dopamine hit from just the fact that it's Engelbert. You know, it could be anybody. Not only does he do amazing music, he has the best name too. Yeah. And I get serious dopamine hits from that just because of how cheesy it was, but it isn't actually cheesy. We think of it as cheesy, but you listen to it and you're like, man, that guy was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I feel like inevitably if something is perceived as cheesy at one point, maybe it didn't last too long, but when it came out, Like the thing that made it cool when it came out is what makes it cheesy or can make it feel cheesy in a different context. There's often a close connection to technology here. So a lot of like 80s pop music at the time maybe seemed cool and new and high tech because it had all this digital synths and stuff in it. And also maybe for the first time recording to digital media rather than tape. Then, you know, 10 years after that, fast forward to my youth and now it feels cheesy and dated, quote unquote. And it's this phenomenon of like, at the time, something feeling high tech now feeling like low tech and we've transcended it. All but the kids are into that now. And now it's right. It goes into recycles, right? So then it comes back. Everything yeah. is analog since again. I actually just bought one. I don't have an analog synth and I can't make the sample based instruments. Just don't do it. It's not the same. It like starts off cool and new and then it gets uncool and old and then it gets cool and old. Yes. That's like the yeah. life cycle. I feel like of these styles. It's a wonderful thing. I was at Blondie yesterday and they had a keyboard player that had just scads of real analog synthesizers on stage uh, and that made that show. Uh, I mean, it was just right, they oh. some of the best keyboard sounds ever too. Yeah. yeah. I've long had uh, in my back pocket among my many album ideas that I will not have the energy to go through on something called 1986. 
And that's where my cheesy CZ Casio cheese CZ 5000 is still behind me. You know, when I first started making music, and if I just think about what was popular at the time and the most dated, that seems the most 80s, like mm-hmm. that 83, there's some okay stuff. And, you know, but by 86, even your favorite band was probably producing their worst or at least most dated sounding album right then. And I kind of want to do oh. a whole album of just exactly that f- format. And you can open for Taylor Swift in her 1989 tour. I guess you missed a t- chance to do that, actually. A lot of the problem with that music, if you can call it a problem, I think it's still problematic because the songs were good and the playing was good. And even some of the sounds from those synthesizers were really good. But the production that was done at the time, there was a, we can't have any bass response or we need to make everything so compartmentalized. So you need to make the bass drum as small or as, as, as thin as possible and the snare as thin as possible. And then we're going to put these giant blooming reverb effects over everything and it becomes unenjoyable. So like there's songs from that period that are just awesome. And I won't put the record on because I hate what it sounds like. This wash of horrible lexicon reverb. And it's like, if you just took that off, it would be great. And the SPX 90. See, see, I realized, <laughs> I realized as I was making this generalization about your favorite bands that, of course, Camp Van Beethoven stuff from 1986 sounds nothing like this, but I really want you to do a remix. If you can get a hold of one of those tracks or you have an anecdote. Yeah, make it sound like <laughs> Europe. Camper Van Beethoven from 1986 does not sound like that. However, Camper Van Beethoven from 1988, when we got mm. signed to a major label, does sound yeah. like that. And it's horrible. And like the first record that we did for Virgin Records, it's so dated sounding. It sounds like 1988 production. And it's like, you can't get rid of it. You can't escape it. Whereas the records before that, we'd been doing ourselves. And so they sound like anything, you know? Right. They sound like Revolver. Yeah, exactly. Somebody just sent me a version of Come On Eileen, newly remixed, like the same exact tracks, but remixed as it would be in 2022, just to get rid of that stuff. I feel like that is not an isolated case of people trying to, can we undo the 80s production? (laughs) Can we see there was actually good stuff here? The whole phenomenon of bands like coming up with a sound that goes against the sound of the era is like a fascinating thing to me because you always get something that sounds like it's from the era because of the technology that's available at the time and kind of doesn't because it's using the technology to create a different sound. And some of which are bands that got really popular. Uh, I think Van Halen in the 80s in many respects was going against the sound of the 80s. Metallica really was. Oh, Metallica, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're in their first couple records. Yeah, very much against what uh, Steve was saying, like a uh, very precise, not super reverby, or at least where the reverb doesn't take over the music, where you can hear every little detail kind of going against the grain of the era. Uh, another interesting example, I think, is like, John Bonham in the 70s, against tons of pressure, resisted the 70s drum sound and made his kit sound kind of more 60s, uh, a lot more reverb not muted. He wouldn't mute the kick drum. And they got more and more popular. And then he just, uh, you know, the more popular they got, the more he dug in his heels. Right. I don't know where that fits in exactly to our topic for this episode. <laughs> well, it's hard for a bunch of music geeks not to have this devolve into just, uh, you know, case study music yeah, geek I stuff. I know we're kind of entering the final minutes of our scheduled time. Can we... Go around one more time and kind of do we have a recommendation or something that would further elucidate a particular point that we haven't yet poked that maybe you were thinking about before this? Steve, do you want to start us? I'm going to go down a a road where certain bands get associated with their biggest hit. And sometimes their biggest hit isn't really a good song. Not in right. my opinion. Some people might think it's a good song, but I personally don't like it. Sometimes bands get dismissed because of that. And I know that I personally dismissed the band Weather Report simply because of the song Birdland. Because Birdland, that did yeah, not, that's what, yeah. Did not fit into what I like about jazz or fusion. And it took me forever to just walk into a record store and pick up an album from 1971 or 72. Yeah, you listen to their first two albums. You're probably like, what? This is the same band? And you take it home and you're like, oh my God, what have I been missing? That's terrible. I can't believe that I dismissed that band. Jonathan, you have something for us? 
Well, I have a lot of things to say about this sort of thing. I mean, the hit song not reflecting the band entirely. I mean, I've suffered from that with Camper, I'd say also, because Take the Skinheads Bowling is the the biggest hit, but it's like the band does a lot of other stuff outside of that. And the band was you know, difficult to isolate how to market it, I think, for a lot of cases, because the things that ended up being the popular songs were not necessarily similar to one another. Again, that's like trying to fit within a genre and like whether you're trying to say, oh, well, we're able to pigeonhole this to describe it so that the people that want to fit into whatever that genre is or whatever that group is can belong to it. But it ended up that our fans were a lot of just basically weirdos that were sort of on the fringes of everybody else's social circles. So we ended up accruing a a large audience that had fringe elements from all different kinds of other musics. And that reminds me of when I was in high school and I went to see the Talking Heads. And this was, I think, at their Fear of Music tour. And so the best tour. (laughs) Well, it was it was really good. But the thing was, I remember going to this concert and looking around and seeing punks, seeing new wave kids with their like, you know, lapel jackets with thin ties, seeing hippies, seeing farmer kids and thinking, oh, is that kind of this music genre? Oh, is that this music's genre? And not really understanding like all of the people were looking around going, oh, am I the wrong genre or am I dressed <laughs> as the wrong genre for this band? So that was very interesting. I feel like you're making the point that Matt has not fully made from his initial presentation, which is the reason that it's hard to tell what goes in a genre. Is this truly punk? Is this truly prog or whatever? Is because of our ambiguity about what kind of person would listen to that. Yeah. And the genre is mostly defined by the listeners and not by the music itself. But as far as like listening, being a fan of quote, unpopular music or unpopular genres, that's changed for me over the course of my life because Before, that was maybe a statement of identity. I'm going to these, say, improv jazz concerts or something like that, something skronky, like Brotsman you mentioned, or something like that, because I feel like this is part of my identity is that I like these kinds of musics. But where that has evolved is that now as, you know, as a dad and I can't listen to a lot of the music that I like out loud, you know, in my (laughs) living room at dinner, because it's like, I mean, I really love avant-garde 20th century classical music and I really love Venetian snares. I love Venetian snares. It's electronic music that's very constantly in motion and constantly changing. And it's very difficult for a lot of people to listen to it. But yet that makes me feel sort of calm when I listen to it. I listen to it at night or outside jazz or things like that. And it's been tough for me to try to get other people to come along with me on those sorts of journeys. I remember being on tour with Camper, maybe, I can't remember when this was, like five years ago or something. We were playing at the Winnipeg Folk Festival and Daniel Lanois was playing at the Winnipeg Folk Festival and he was doing a club show in town with Venetian Snares because they're both from Winnipeg. And I was like, oh my God, I have to go see this. And I had to try to drag my bandmates along and they were just like, I don't know if I like this kind of music. (laughs) It's like, no, this is the best. This is the best. So it's hard, but mostly my unpopular genre listening is by myself at this point. It doesn't involve a social circle any longer. Well, you can, we'll provide some links with this episode that you can spread your evil seed, uh, not just with the music (laughs) you've created, but the music you enjoy. And Steve is now doing that on a weekly basis. Bi-weekly. Matt, what do you have to leave us with? Do you have a a recommendation? Actually, one thing I want to say uh, very quickly is, so I don't have any of uh, Jonathan's or Steve's albums, but I listened to a bunch of your stuff on YouTube leading up to this episode. I have to say it is truly awesome. Like, I'm going to go out and and make some purchases right after this episode. I trust Mark will include links to uh, your guys' Mm -hmm. stuff. And to your stuff. I'll put up. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. The Matt Kraken. (laughs) The Matt Kraken. That's right. So, uh, yes, as the one musical poser in this group, I will close with an anecdote. So I was out to dinner downtown with my wife, Melina, and I was like, yeah, I really dig this like Maroon 5 group. I've just been getting into them lately. And, you know, whenever I say the word Maroon 5 to any of my friends, they just like gasp in horror and they like pass out. And, you know, it's a little weird to me because it's like I go on the web and the web tells me that they're like one of the most popular bands right now. This is back when they were their second wave of popularity about 10 years ago. But then how come everybody hates them if they're so popular? And my wife was like, dude, you just hang out with too many snobs. You ask any normal ass person if they like Maroon 5, they're going to say, yeah. I was like, really? I think they're going to hate them. And she's like, no. So she turned around. We were in a bar. She turned around to a table behind us. And she's like, hey, do you guys like Maroon 5? 
And then without missing a beat, every single, it's like nine people at the table, every single person was like, oh my God, they're the best. And then they all started singing and she will be loved in unison. Uh, <laughs> so this was my wife Melinda's way of demonstrating that what is cool and what is uncool is very socially contextual. So the, my takeaway moral from this is, you know, if you feel ashamed of any of the music you listen to or the opposite, extra cool because you're listening to this music and you want to try to get away from those feelings, try hanging out with a different group of people that night. That's a way in which you can influence the social pressure type feelings that music has for you. Hello, normal people in a bar. I listen to normal music <laughs> like you. Share with like me. Yes. We are from France. That's right. <laughs> we, yeah. We, yeah. We, that's basically me at any bar. You get, you, yeah, that's Matt at a bar. That reminds me of the other thing that I wanted to talk about, which was the, the idea of stigmatized music. Again, going back to the early 1980s, the Grateful Dead. I went to UC Santa Cruz. So it was like there was huge Grateful Dead presence there. But amongst the people that were cool music listeners, nobody would admit ever to have listened to the Grateful Dead. They would never be interested in that. And part of it has to do with the fact that the deadhead community had become so crusty and grotesque by that period of time where there was... And like, was, you know, weed has to be a central part of your life or whatever to be part yeah, of that demographic. Yeah, no. exactly. So now, like during the pandemic, I ended up starting this project. And then after I was about three months into it, I found that there was another group of people on Steve Hoffman forums who had started also, so I caught up with them. But the project was listening to every version of Dark Star from the beginning and analyzing it. So I've now listened to literally 150 of the 230 versions and written... Of the, of the performances by the Grateful Dead, not by other artists. Okay. No, of the performances by the Grateful Dead that are recorded. And I've written from two paragraphs to like several pages on each version so far. Uh, wow. When I've told other people, like I started this two years ago now or something like that, so I'm still involved in this. It's going to be going on for another several years. But when I tell people about that, they're just like, what? You're listening to the Grateful <laughs> Dead? It's like, no, it's amazing. I mean, the track is amazing. They played it 230 whatever times over the course of 30 years. It was never the same once. You know, it's like, it's amazing. They're really good. They were really good at doing that. But it's stigmatized still, like listening to hippie music or whatever. And I'm sure on the other side of that, there's like people that are, you know, really turned on by, say, white supremacist metal or Ted Nugent or something like that. And it's like, I, you know, I'm not going to delve into why a person would do that. But it's like obviously something that they can't talk about. Well, I'm so disgusted with you now, Jonathan, that you've gone through that thing that we're going to have to end the podcast right now. Uh, <laughs> end it. End this th podcast. Th thank you so, so much to all three of you. How dare you? Uh, How dare if you? anybody wants to stick around for a little supporter talk, that'll be up for the supporters. Thank you, folks, for listening. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode, and you get to hear the episodes in advance of everyone else at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.